I'd like to show you why knowing your why is the start of your journey. Without a strong why, it can be so difficult to reach your maximum potential. My name is Dr. Jason Ballara, and every week I meet with real estate investors and mindset specialists that are taking action in order to build a life according to their own terms. We will break down what drives successful people and allows them to achieve at such a high level. If you are a professional wanting to break through, or simply someone that wants to hear an inspiring story, the Know Your Why podcast is made for you. Hi everyone, I'm Jason Ballara, and this is the Know Your Why podcast. Today I'm here with Catherine Monaco. Catherine has nearly 10 years of real estate investing and operating experience. She began single family rentals and house flipping before transitioning to larger multifamily projects. Um, Catherine and I actually met, we are in a uh, mutual uh, mastermind group. So that's how, how we uh, originally met. Um, I'm very thankful for you coming on the show today, Catherine. Thanks a lot for taking the time out. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah. So um, I'm just going to let you go ahead and tell your story, tell us your background, and then we'll go through and sure. um, kind of dive in wherever it takes us. Sounds great. Um, so I actually fell into real estate accidentally, which I think is a pretty common story, but I was uh, traveling. I was in a job where I was traveling four or five plus days a week for work, and I couldn't quite stomach the idea of paying $1,200, $1, $1,400 a month for a downtown apartment I was going to be in you know, two nights a month. Um, so instead I bought a little town home and put some friends as roommates in and they were able to watch the house as well. Um, I didn't know it at the time, but I was house hacking. And then a year, yeah. year later, somebody mentioned that to me. Um, and I had seen sort of the returns and I said, this is great. Like, this is incredible. I didn't expect the, the benefits that I was seeing plus the taxes and everything else. And so, um, turned me on to real estate in general. I consumed everything I could. Uh, reading, podcasts, you name it. This was almost 10 years ago at this point. Um, and then continued to build the portfolio from there. So I did a, a few more single family rentals, um, some duplexes in the area, um, transitioned to flipping when I'm, I'm local in Denver and the rental market went crazy here, but the housing market was even hotter. So when the housing prices outpaced rental increases, um, I switched to some, some flipping and, but always saw multifamily as the longer play, the scalable play, the way to really unlock um, true wealth and value. And so about three years ago, made the transition into multifamily and haven't looked back. I'm glad to be here. Awesome. Awesome. So, you know, all of this start with the, with the single family stuff in, in residential, do you still have, do you still hold on to any of that part as part of your portfolio and you're just adding multifamily on top of that? Well, we, I do not. I have one property that I still hold on to. Um, I sold off quite a few of them a couple of years ago when the market was in a really great place. Um, and we rolled that equity into some passive investments in multifamily as well as some of our active projects. And so we're, I'm largely out of single family now. I have one, it's actually my first house. Um, it's just on a really low, like 2.8% mortgage. And I was my first one I lived in. So we had a generous mortgage rate and um, it cash flows really well. We have great tenants in it. But other than that, we've transitioned fully to multifamily. Yeah, I find like a lot of people have done that where they had that, you know, sort of single family background. And then um, once they discover multifamily, it kind of, you know, all right, let's let that, let that all go. And, and it makes sense. I mean, especially even from just a, a management standpoint, right. It's a lot yeah. easier to handle uh, or to have third-party management on the on multifamily side than it is on these, on these residential properties. So three years ago, you decided to make that switch. 
how did that look? What what was that transition like for you? What what kind of things did you do to kind of make that change? Yeah, it was COVID inspired or COVID influenced for sure. Um, I was just starting to ramp up my house flipping business. I had thought that part of it is I wanted to get out of my W-2 and I didn't necessarily see a path forward without a cash flow. So I thought, oh, I'll flip a bunch of houses. I'll get really good at real estate and then I'll transition into multifamily. And when COVID happened and the uncertainty in the housing market, especially in those early months happened, um, it was really, I think, a gift to push me into multifamily. But I'm glad it did because multifamily is nothing like flipping a house. And so I could have flipped a thousand properties, 10,000 properties. I would have been probably no more better equipped to be in the multifamily space. Um, and so uh, found a mentorship. That was the first thing. That's where you and I have met. Um, found mentors and a great team to be able to sort of learn that path. Um, fully committed to education um, and the process of that. And then from there, um, multifamily is a partnership game. So I found partners to work with um, informally in certain deals and learn along the way and just offer the value I could as I continue to learn and ramp up. Uh, formally, I met somebody in our group that she, my partner, Denise Piazza, and I founded One Street Capital about a year ago. Um, but it's been mostly just putting yourself in the right networks in the right areas and learning and and being willing to consistently do. Those were the two things is access to the right education and then access to actually taking steps forward. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You're so as far as the, I mean, since we're, we are part of that mentorship group together, what did you discuss like the importance of that to you in, in terms yeah. of your progression? I think um, a lot of people struggle with the idea of, you know, sort of the, the guru pat where, you know, you, that you look at it and there's yeah. like the guru versus a, a, a true mentorship program maybe talk, you know, your thoughts on that and, and how you figured out what group you wanted to join and everything. And I've talked about it before. So I think it'd be good to get someone else's take there. Sure. I was, so in terms of what group to join, I was largely opportunistic. I was really excited to be multifamily. There was this flagship cohort that was starting. It was their first um, time that they were launching the group. So I didn't do a lot of research into types of groups. Um, I do recommend people do. And the types of things I'd look for are, like I said, uh, cohortness. Um, what type of programming are you getting? Is it is it raise-based? Because there's a lot of raise-based mentorship programs. Is it operational-based? Is it a blend of it? Knowing what you, there's like not really better or worse, just knowing what you want to get out of it. But I think the difference between that and like a guruship is just the give and take and the peer level. So access to peers in that, both from a learning standpoint, um, some people were ahead of me, some people were or behind in terms of knowledge and, and expertise or experience, um, but also just being able to hold each other accountable. That was one of the biggest things that came out of the first year is there was about 30 of us and we were all running different, different paces. Some were just really just dipping their toes in. Some like me were fully committed and wanted to run as fast as possible. So we, from that group sort of, we formed an organic accountability group that met on the side and talked and became thought partners and sometimes actual partners financially in deals. Um, and that was really important. And then just the ability to ask questions. Um, our mentorship group has a pretty active Slack channel. I know others do as well um, that you can in real time. But I think that accountability is the difference to me between a guru like talk at you program and a live and breathe mentorship. I will say 
no matter what though, you have to commit to action. So I think people can stay in an education and, you know, you can watch every video in the series. You can read every book. Like you have to, at some point, hold yourself accountable to taking steps. And whether that's a group that holds you accountable or a a true partner in your own business or a spouse, whatever it is, I think the action is where the real learning happens. Um, So I do think people can sometimes get stuck in the mentorship groups and not actually move themselves forward to taking action. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And and just, I mean, I've said it before, but we are a part of apartment addicts. If anybody's looking for a good mentorship <laughs> group, it is. Um, but the, the the accountability piece and the, and the action piece, right? It's the, the groups, I think, whatever mentorship group you're talking about, it, it's really that accountability between members and and the, the uh, I guess, mentors of the, of the group. All of that is really important. But you're hundred percent right. It's like, you can read all the books. You can listen to every single podcast. You can join a mentorship group, whatever one it is. But if you don't, at the end of the day, put in the work and take some action, really, you're probably just throwing away money, right? It's not, it's just not, you yes. know, or wasting time or whatever it is. You're not, you're not going to learn the, the real learning comes from when you actually start doing what's nice about those mentorship programs is you can start doing with a little bit of a safety net, right? So there's people there that you can ask questions and like, oh, am I going to screw this up? Or did I screw this up? What do I do now? Yeah. That kind of thing. So I, I think having that in place, it facilitates the ability to take action and maybe, maybe, I don't know, maybe take some of the fear away. Maybe it takes some of the, um, it shortens the learning curve, that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, and I think, um, you never, I mean, I never want to be the most experienced or the smartest person in the room, right? So mentorships is, a, is and these groups that are forming, are, I think, are really good places to find people that are, you know, slightly ahead of you and in whatever vein you want to describe that as. Um, but that's that's something I've learned tremendously from or just even inspired by, right? Like you get in the right circle of people that are all doing things. And the the psychology becomes, well, I want to, I need to do too. I need, I, you know. Um, or, or even better, I can do this too, right? Like if yeah. all these people are accomplishing it and I'm in the same seats as them, I, I can I can go do this. And so much of multifamily, but also just entrepreneurship in general is mental and just hanging in there and, and mm-hmm. being able to see and believing in yourself. And I don't think that gets talked about as much because it's a little crunchy, <laughs> um, but it's really important. And that's something you get from the mentorship groups too, the right mentorship group at least. Yeah. No, uh, the the hanging in there part of it, especially in multifamily, I think my theory is that one of the reasons why people might choose residential real estate or um, or or choose to stay in residential real estate rather than moving over to multifamily, and I'm not even saying like moving completely, like it's it's perfectly reasonable to have portions of both in your portfolio. It doesn't matter, but I think one of the reasons is the speed, and I think. In residential real estate, if you're flipping houses, even if you're Burr, like generally the idea is you're going to be doing many deals like quickly, right? It's like, oh, I want to, f- I need to flip this house. I need to get in and out of it in three or four months. It might take you a year to find and close a multifamily deal. Yes. And so that time in between isn't just sitting around waiting for it to happen, right? So it, it that, that piece that you just mentioned about, you know, sort of the, that just keep on going and moving through, you've, you've got to keep doing all of the things that go along with it in the meantime, while you're not closing a deal. Otherwise, it's just going to be harder and take longer to find and close that next deal. Yeah, there's not a lot of 
uh, daily daily wins like that that right. are big but when the needle moves it moves quite a bit right. um right. and that's important to remember as well multifamily yeah yeah absolutely um tell us about your first multifamily deal how did how did that come about you know kind of share share whatever you want uh with it as as far as your comfort level but but yeah tell us a little bit about how that went for you yeah absolutely so we um Denise and I formed One Street Capital uh, almost 12 months ago. We're coming up on our one year. And um, so I'll, I'll talk to our first deal at that company because I think that's that's where we're at. But um, we, you know, when you think about it, coming into 2022 was a, was a fairly challenging time to be breaking in and being fairly new in multifamily. Um, I'm our underwriter. I underwrote probably a thousand deals last year. Um, and there was, we would offer like 20% off asking and the deal, I mean, we wouldn't even get a broker calling us back. And so one of our strategies was we have a lot of investors that wanted to deploy capital. Um, let's make sure that we get them a good deal and partner with the right people in the first year as we continue to try to, you know, um, mine the broker network and get the right deal in the right market for us to be lead sponsors on. And so we, uh, we really committed to finding right partners. We went to conferences, we have our network groups, we talked to hundreds of people to make sure we were finding the right fit. Um, and it was ongoing conversation. So not just once, and then we looked at past deals that they had done and really tried to do a lot of due diligence on the partnership itself and mutual benefit for them as well. Are we good partners? Are we a good fit? Um, and there was a group, uh, a partner out of Greenville. We love Greenville, South Carolina. We had a couple markets that we had identified um, through a lot of analysis as well that we'd be interested in working in. Um, and they got a great off-market deal. Um, they wanted a sponsor to come in and help with asset management and um, capital, which are our two bread and butters. And so we um, agreed to do it and we closed with 220 unit um, in Greenville last year. Um, and it's been awesome. It's, we had a fixed rate debt, so we've avoided some of that roller coaster that people are experiencing with interest rates right now. Um, and just a really great up and coming area. The properties, two properties, but they're next to each other, so that we're operating them as one. And they um, they needed a lot of love, but that's exactly what we did. It's also a uh, tax, um, a low income, not low income housing, but a low income where we um, offer some of our units to the AMI, um, AMI restricted, and because it's a great area, uh, so we're able to offer like really high quality, affordable housing um, to tenants, and and that's really our sweet spot. That's win 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 as far as we're concerned. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Being able to you know sort of make it, obviously housing affordability is a big. Um, problem throughout the country right now and and you know being able to be part of that solution while still realizing that it's a business and you know sort of being able to yeah. accomplish all of that I think is is a really um frankly a sort of a tricky <laughs> tricky line to to walk a you know a delicate balance if you will but um it's really great then to be able to you know sort of give back to tenants and and provide them with high quality housing right for you know something that they can afford and, and 
that's really important to us. We don't want to just be a private equity placement company where we just put private money into deals and, and then don't care about the community or the tenants. We're really big on wanting to do deals and communities where we're helping provide really quality, safe housing to people. Um, and that's one of the reasons I love this particular property is we're able to do that. Um, and we have still have generous returns for our investors. The tenants are super happy. Um, they're getting new high quality product in a safe area. Um, so it's really like great all around. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. Um, what's your, you mentioned uh, the, the interest rate I don't know, fiasco, you call it whatever you want. <laughs> the the interest rates. is probably the right, the right term. Yeah, yeah roller coaster up, perfect, yeah. right? But um, what is your take? What are you looking at? You know, you said you do the underwriting. So what are you kind of, how are you factoring that in, in the deals you're looking at now? What, what's your take on, you know, kind of how to work within multifamily real estate with the realization that, hey, interest rates have gone up. It doesn't mean... They're not the highest they've ever been in the world. So certainly people have made money in real estate for uh, centuries. So it's not it's not impossible. But, but how are you approaching it? Yeah. So for new deals, for future deals that we're considering, we're just underwriting to the higher interest rate. And what that usually means is that the price is coming down. We've seen, and um, I think a lot of buyers still feel like it's 2020 and sellers, or sorry, excuse me, sellers think it's 2020, but buyers think it's 2008 and neither is the truth, right? Yeah. So there is this gap between seller and buyer expectations, but we just, we let the numbers tell our story, right? So um, I, I don't want to be overly conservative on underwriting. I would rather be accurate and correct. And so we try to really drill into not being, you know, I think when there's uncertainty, the default is to be really conservative and that's good, but accuracy is even better. So we try to find that sweet spot. We are underwriting higher interest rates. We talk to a lot of lenders. So these are actual numbers for the market that we're in. Um, I think when you stick to just a few markets you can get really good at that in a type of product too you start to understand what the interest rate is doing and then we just I mean what do we think rents will do we know that we're not going to see five percent inflation anymore um maybe even some deflation in rents the the latest articles coming up that rents might be decreasing this year year over year and so we we underwrite to accurate we put a ton of data behind it and then really the model will tell you what the price should be. And if there's a gap and if the seller's not interested, we are just continuing the conversation. We're willing to be second or third in position um, if something falls through and we circle back and we have systems for all of that. Um, but we won't, we won't take interest rate risk on the assumption that it's going to come down. It, it will, we believe it will, um, you know, in 12 to 24 months. But if your deal only works on a refi when interest rates come down, it's, it doesn't in our mind work. So we're just sticking to our values and our principles and letting the model tell the story. I'm a numbers person. So yeah, really yeah. easy to, to just let it, let it tell me what it says. Yeah. And, the, and that's what I, I, that's what I keep getting, you know, I talk about a lot because just it, the, the, what we see, you know, what people hear out, out in the media or whatever is, is about interest rates. That's only one of the metrics on a very <laughs> large, complicated spreadsheets that these right. underwriting models typically are. So it's not it's it's not good that interest rates went up necessarily, but it's not also as bad as everybody sort of seems to think it is. I think it's bad when you're uh if if you're a seller and you're expecting to still sell at, you know, when interest rates were under three percent, like it's just not gonna work that way anymore. But yeah, you're yeah. you're taking into account 
interest rate, the sales price, the rents, the rent growth, expenses. There, there's so many different things that, exactly. as you yeah. said, you know, being accurate rather because it's a year. You know, you mentioned you know 2022 being a hard time. 2021, 2022 was 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 actually probably a pretty hard time. Not even just to get started in multifamily, but to be involved and find find deals that made sense because everything was was all the pricing had gone up so quickly kind of the opposite of what you know where we think should happen now or what some people as you said that the <laughs> the buyers may, maybe think should happen now but it is somewhere in between and so if you're just if you're truly just looking at it from a numbers standpoint as you just said that's that's it that's all you can do and and being yeah. dialed in on the product and the market is going to help you do that more accurately you know it a year and a half, two years ago, when people were saying they were underwriting conservatively, it probably wasn't actually that conservative. Now, a lot of people saying they're underwriting conservatively, it might be over conservative, right? It, it's just kind of, uh, it, it, you have to take the emotion out of this when you're absolutely when you're numbers. It's it's really all it is. It's just, it's not an emotional decision. It's a, it's a math-based decision, I guess, if you will. Um, yeah. So I, I love that may, approach. I think there's something on that too. So if I may, I think that there, my hunch is that there's a lot of people um, that got into multifamily, let's say 2017, 2018, and made a lot of money in the next three years um, because of the compressing cap rate and the historical low cap rates and the historical hot multifamily market. And I think that's great. Like I have no qualms about that, but I, I do think we're trying to coach our, our investors that the next five years are going to go more back to normal historical averages as opposed to the previous five, which were which were the anomaly. And but if you've only been in real estate for those five years, even a passive or active player, right. you have a completely different lens. And so we're just trying again, we just come with a lot of data. Um, and to your point, take the emotion out of it. There is not one part of our model that doesn't come with three or four data points behind it to corroborate that that estimate or that assumption because that's all a model is is you're trying to make the best assumptions given the business plan and the market and things like that and there are people that are really good at bringing data to that and there are people that shoot more from the hip and we try to be the former um but but i i do think we're gonna see different headwinds in the next five years than the certainly than the previous five and just recurring to a sense of normalcy but it'll feel really abnormal for people that are very used to 2018 to 2023 so could be yeah, interesting it's a it definitely i think the the idea of a new normal is is very true and, and it's not it's one of the things especially as as a passive investor so one of the things that you know i i would say even if we go back more than three years ago, five years ago, eight years, you, you would look at the different asset classes in terms of like A, B, C, D, right? And you were supposed to see a pretty significant jump in returns as you go down right. for the risk, the yeah. asset class, right? Right, yeah, risk, risk adjusted returns. So you were supposed to see that, but what happened when all these prices went up and the cap rates got compressed? What happened is is it didn't necessarily compress them equally. Right, it was the the cap rates on right. the C and D class deals that were way up here came down like this, and the A and B class went down a little bit. So right. what happened is that all just got there wasn't much of a delta between them, and so the people what 
what I think we have to adjust to, aside from what you said, all of those headwinds and things like that, and the and the, the new normal going back to the way it was, I think one of the things that may not go back to the way it was is the high returns that were expected in you know sort of those those heavy value add deals. You should still get higher returns, but I think people are going to have to think about like okay, and we're not going to probably see, before we were seeing people achieve high returns in over these last few years because of the market and because of the cap rate compression. Prior to that, th there were higher returns the more risk you took on. Now I think yeah. we're in a spot where I, I don't, I don't know, I could I be know. wrong. I don't see us going back to like eight caps on C-class. Like I, I just don't know that that's going to happen. And so it's, it's kind of like- what what will that do to overall returns and and where where's that going to show and maybe it will because that's going to make make people have more demand for the A and B class I don't I don't know but I think there's a lot yeah. of things to shake out here based on you know kind of what what expectations there are in the market both on the the buyer and the um like the passive investor expected returns yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and it's also like against the backdrop of what else could you be doing with your money, right? So, right. Um, you know, every investor is going to have to make their own decision. I, I think rents are probably going to, I mean, I know they're going to stop increasing. Like there are some markets that saw 20% year over year rents. Those days are, we're, we're past those. Yeah, um, but I was even concerned with <laughs> Yeah, I was even concerned a couple of years ago because there, there's a lot of discussion around, well, the supply is still constrained. And that's true. We have we do have a lot of developments coming online in the next 24 months. So some some there's going to be a big influx of supply, especially in some of these bigger metros. However, even beyond that, there's an upper limit that renters can afford. There's an affordability factor. And we know that, you know, average median household incomes are not going up in proportion to rents. And so what I think is an unspeakable spoken, and certainly I don't hear it talked about a lot, is this sense of bad debt on the books. And, and you can build, their, the market rent can be accurate and you can have those rents and achieve and put people in place. But if they can't pay that rent, if they can't pay that rent on time, you're actually not achieving those rents. And so the we've seen on some of our deals, the bad debt line be higher than anticipated. Um, and I think, you know, depending on your tenant base, but as student loans expire, uh, or the the um, the stop on student loans as as the forbearance expires and you have mm -hmm. to start paying those again. I think you're going to have new consumer debt is at an all time high. You've got people really constrained to pay, and I think that's going to start impacting bad debt and collections a lot. And that might be what we see that line item in multifamily that we're watching really closely um, because it's so easy to plug in like a two percent bad debt or lost lease and be on your way. But I just don't think that's accurate in what we're going to see in the next couple of years. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's, that's a great point. And I, th I think it's happening. It's happening now. There's, I mean, a lot of things happened over the last few years that li literally never happened before. Right. There's, I mean, yeah. we've had pandemics before, but like, I mean, right. There, 100%. Pandemic, there was a, a tremendous amount of money and assistance put out there to people. And now all that's going away. The assistance is going away. So a lot of this is um, probably almost assistance-based, right? Like, so if you're, you're, you get used to having this extra money coming in that isn't part of your income for even a couple of years, like I think, I think people thought the pandemic wasn't going to last this long as well. And so now, you know, three years later, we're 
we're seeing the the repercussions of what probably should have happened like six months into the pandemic. Like it, it's yeah. just kind of a, a crazy but thing. And I, then, I would and put student loans in that as well. Yeah, I mean, yeah. average student loan is like $800 a month. That's a rent payment in some yeah. market. Um, yeah. So if you're not paying that right now, and instead you're taking on consumer debt, which that's the one thing that concerns me the most when I look at ability tenant to pay is our consumer debt in the pandemic just has like exponentially increased, even with the influx of cash that went out to yeah. people as um, assistance. Um, and so, you know, rising interest rates, that's monthly payments, whether or not they're being made, mm -hmm. but it's just an accumulation of and it's all going to come back at once and it's going to impact tenants ability to pay. And that, that, like I said, that's one thing we're watching hawkishly um, because I do think it's going to impact some markets and, and certainly the B and C value add plays. I think that could really impact. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that is something for sure. You know, we talked about already like the metrics you want to look at when you're underwriting and things like that. That is something for sure. I think people have to be uh, much more mindful of in in that initial underwriting. As you said, don't just don't just plug in. Oh, it's going to be this because that's what we put in there. Like you really need that's to look stabilized, at stabilized, right? right yeah. yeah. You, you really need to look based at, on what historical what? Yeah. <laughs> right. His historical that this is not historical. So we you do have to kind of look at it. You know what if you're buying an asset, what's the bad debt right now? I would plan on it being that way for a year or two years. Don't don't think that you're just going to sort of flip a switch and make, because I think the other thing is that it's going to be different on a market to market basis, but a lot of the counties cannot keep up with the level of evictions that are being filed and the, and the setouts yes. and things like that, that are, that are ordered. So it's, I mean, it's a challenging time. It's a challenging time for apartment owners. It's a challenging time for the people living in those apartments. It's not, it's, it's, it's been, a lot of it's been unfortunately artificially created, but it is, we are where we are. People need to be careful about, you know, that consumer debt. It's, it's when, when we got all the stimulus money, people paid off credit cards and then just went right back to using them. And now it, as you said, it's at an all time high. So, um, uh, I think maybe that means uh, we still need to keep on educating about how to <laughs> how to uh, handle finances and things like that. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I mean, all really great points, Catherine. I I, I uh, enjoy this discussion. Let me um, let me switch gears, and I want to get to ask you the questions that I ask every guest. Um, sure. The first one is related to the name of the show being "Know Your Why," and so so what is your why? What what kind of drives you forward? I know. Um, you're, you, you already spoke, you're very much about action and systems and all of this. You're, you're a driven person. Um, what's, what's the fuel behind that? Yeah. Um, okay. So I come from a family of physicians and I do mean everyone, all my siblings, both parents, my two best friends, um, not my husband. I didn't marry a doctor. I, I really should have completed that <laughs> trifecta, but, um, and so we, they are able, you know, they're, they're able to provide really great lifestyles for their families. They're able to take care of their families financially. Um, it's decent hours, depending on the type of physician you are. Um, my parents, certainly we grew up without wanting, we were very blessed. Um, but I think more importantly at the end, you know, my parents just retired after 40 years, they were family physicians, um, in the course of that 40 year career, in addition to being able to take care of us and their family, they did so much good 
in the world, right? Like they were there for their patients in some really hard times. They kept people healthy. They were members of their community. And that really showed up when they retired, um, which was three years ago. So right around this time that that really crystallized for me. I'm a I'm an MBA by training and a career con in consultancy, specifically in mergers and acquisitions. So like great lifestyle if you want it to be, um, you know, pays the bills that can take care of your family. But I really looked forward 40 years and realized I wasn't going to feel about that career path the way I felt and the pride and, and I think what my parents can really hang their hat on. And so for me, that was a real light bulb moment that there's a lot to unlock that's probably sitting behind a 40 to 50 hour work week in terms of being able to get back to the community. So that's my number one why is um, really being able to unlock whatever potential I have to show up for my community, for my tribe, um, for my family, for my friends, and to really give goodness back to the world that I thought was being hampered by you know, 45 to 50 hours of corporate work. Um, but then in that really helped provide a path and uh, education and um, means for others to do the same. So whatever their potential that is sitting locked behind a, a job or, or uh, responsibilities that maybe they don't love, um, that's what I think this passive investing in real estate can really help unlock. So it's that duality for me, for sure, that keeps me going. Um, I, coupled with that, I, you know, finance education and making sure people are more literate in finance and helping them um, really clean that up. I think we, his, or as, a, as a country, don't do a great job teaching that to our kids and even some adults. Um, but even beyond like finance 101, there's this like, next level as I talk to investors of like really educated, brilliant people that don't know what to do with their finances. Like they've, they've got their debt under control. You know, they, they're really, they've got their 401k and that's great. They don't really know what the next phase is. So it's kind of all that coalescing together to really help people unlock that potential, whatever that means. I mean, it's going to be different for everyone. Yeah. hundred percent. I love that. I love the, the the looking that far ahead and just thinking you know okay what is what is what am I going to look back on you know in this these career paths that I can feel good about feel like yeah. I you know impacted 100%. people so I think that's that's amazing and and I, the stuff that you feel good about won't always be stuff that is able to make money Right. right. And so recognizing if that's not one and the same, that's okay. I'm like, listen, I don't think money's taboo. You have to be able to eat. You have to be able to enjoy your life. You have to be able to take care of your people and you have to be able to do it in a way that you can still have time and energy for the things that really matter. And I think that's, that's hard. That's hard to do today. Yeah. Yeah. But, but you can, I mean, that the, the reality is, yes. is you can do both. You can uh, make a living and also have an impact. And I think one thing that I think sometimes and i i've been guilty of this in my life too it's like people think when i make money then i can have an impact and probably true that when you make money you can have more of an impact but you don't have to wait to have some x amount of dollars before you can yeah. go out and 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 have an impact in whatever way it is it doesn't have to be financial it can be do donating your time it can be you know whatever it is just educating other people, anything, really anything that can help other people, you can do that at the same time as you have a job, grow your business, have a family, whatever it is. These are, you know, I know you're very values driven. So it's just kind of, you have to decide yeah. what, what are your values and what keep you, um, keep those in front of you and, and, and part of your, you know, sort of everyday, everyday actions. 
Yeah. And, and you said, you said the right word. It's the time it's, where's your time going and where I think people underestimate how much impact their time has, um, and really being judicial about, about where you want to spend it, because that is very finite, very. So yeah. that's something we focus on and, and want to live a value based decision around that. Yeah, one of the—I mean, just one of the greatest things I feel like the, the things I felt best about in my entire life was I did Big Brother, Big Sister, and mm-hmm. just that, just being program. there to spend time with that boy who grew up to be a, a man that was—I <laughs> mean, I went to his high school graduation and started it like with him when I think he was eight or twelve or something, like some, a young kid. It was just like an amazing thing to experience for me. And it was like, didn't, we did things, but it didn't cost me any money. Like it cost me some time. And it was just something that, that I'll never forget. I hope he doesn't, but it's just kind of one of those things that was just uh, a a really, it's it's just, there are ways to do it without, you know, spending, it it doesn't always mean money. Um, Well, one of the things, Jason, if I can just harp on that, that I think is a really good reflection and it's a little off topic of the podcast, but I think it's important since we're here is asking yourself, like, if I could make the exact same amount I was making today, assuming that's steady state enough for you, what would I go do? And I think that really, like, if you just were handed a check, but you could go do anything else, I think that question is one of the more interesting ones I've I've asked and and gotten some of the responses. And it really gets people thinking about "Hmm, what could I do? What do I really want to spend my time in? And so um, just putting that out there as a reflective question, if somebody wants it. Yeah. No, it's, it's a great thing to think about. And it's, I mean, it, it <laughs> tying it into real estate, this is where passive income becomes mm-hmm. uh, so Huge. vital as you can, you can, if you can formulate a plan to get yourself to that level of passive income, then guess what? You do actually have the ability to go do those things that you just, you know, thought about with the question you posed. So um, it's, yeah, it's a, a really it, you just have to be intentional about it. You just have to decide that this is what I want out of life and, and I'm going to yep. make it happen. And then, and then there are people that can help you make it happen. So just, it's just figuring out that what you really want. Um, but second question for you is what's, tell us something about yourself that, that isn't common knowledge, a special skill, a hobby, something just to let people know you better. Um, anything you're comfortable sharing? Sure. Um, in another life, I feels like another life ago, I was a strength and conditioning coach. So I worked with, uh, at the time, usually college athletes, but um, I was at the University of Michigan in their program and had just some access, worked in a local like strength and conditioning clinic. Um, and it was awesome. It was, you know, helping athletes get to the next level, whatever that meant for them recovering. I got to work with some, some awesome people and be in a really cool environment, but feels like forever ago, but um yeah, that was my first career. Yeah, awesome, awesome. Again, another way to give back. This is a the the uh, <laughs> as someone who uh, oftentimes feels very old, uh, having a <laughs> a strength and conditioning coach, trainer, whatever, however you want to refer to it, uh, it, it keeps me going. So I think that the value provided by that career path is actually tremendous, tremendously yeah. Um, yeah. impactful. Um, when I would, people... uh... oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was just gonna say when people hear this, how do you, how can they reach out to you? Um, you can find us on our website, onestreetcapital.com. It's, um, just one spelled out and then streetcapital.com are, we have buttons on there that you can schedule a call from us. Um, or you can email me Catherine, but it's with a C 
um, at onestreetcapital.com. Um, but we have all of our contact information online. That's the best way to get a hold of us. Okay. We'll have that in the show notes too, so people have it. Great. Um, last question for you, Catherine. When uh, what what's a piece of advice you would give to someone who's trying to get started in real estate? They're they're taking those those steps, maybe that you were uh, a few years back. What, what would you tell them? Uh, get a partner. Even if that's not formal in your business, even if that's just an accountability buddy, have somebody that you can be accountable to moving the ball forward. I think we talked about it earlier, but a lot of people get stuck in education. Um, and that first step is really scary. And I, I get it. I completely understand it. But whatever it takes to get you to take action, um, that's where the real learning and the real momentum is going to come. For me, that was a partner. That's why I say it, but it might look slightly different, but whatever accountability you have to have to move yourself forward. Yeah. Well, and partner, I mean, can really go in so many different ways. You can use that, you know, as you said, as a, a business partner, a friend, a, a mentor, whatever it is, some, someone in your life that, uh, that helps you with that, um, yeah, I, I went alone for a long time, a long time. Yeah. And it was the accelerant of having people around me um, was, it was like gasoline on a fire. It, it, I, and you, I heard it a million times. I think it's, there's a lot of excuses not to get a partner. I had them all, believe me. Um, but on the other side of it, that was, that was really where, where things started to happen. Yeah, yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, well, listen, this was awesome. Thank you for coming on and sharing Thank your you story and, and all of your um, insight. It's been been wonderful. Um, Thank you. And to those who are listening, I'm sure you're going to love this episode. Please like, rate and review so we can get more great guests like Catherine. I'd like to show you why knowing your why is the start of your journey. Without a strong why, it can be so difficult to reach your maximum potential. My name is Dr. Jason Ballara, and every week I meet with real estate investors and mindset specialists that are taking action in order to build a life according to their own terms. We will break down what drives successful people and allows them to achieve at such a high level. If you are a professional wanting to break through, or simply someone that wants to hear an inspiring story, the Know Your Why podcast is made for you.